This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns Gordon. Now this time we've just released our biggest ever athletic clothing range. And this range is my favourite we've ever done. We've put so much time and effort into this to making sure it's just spot on. So we've gone for a nice clean golden black look across the whole range. We've got some specialist compression wear. So we've got compression rash guard, compression leggings, compression shorts. We've got a nice compression leggings and sports bra set for the women. And then we've also got some nice t-shirts that you can wear in and out of the gym. So we've got our bind room tee and a nice distressed look. We've got horns loading t-shirt. We've got oversized bind room t-shirt, which is probably my favorite item out of the whole range. See if you just go and check that out. It's really, really nice. And uh, we've got some women's only t-shirts. We've got some athletic shorts. We've got jogging pants. Honestly, we have hit everything with this range and we've put it all out there. So go over to the website, hornsvoting.com. Use the code HORNS10 to listen to the podcast, get a discount 10% of anything off the website. So that's not just the athletic wear. You get anything off of the horns, the mead, any other clothing, the jewelry, you name it. You're going to get 10% off. So just use the code HORNS10. Listen to the podcast, get that. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Horns Bowden, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvik. Hello, everyone. This time we're joined by Dr. Barbara Jane Davey, who is a scholar of religion and ethnography and has been working on gifting rituals among contemporary neo-pagans. So welcome uh, to the show, Barbara. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, for anybody listening, Barbara jumped in last minute, literally, I think, less than 12 hours ago, you you agreed to come on as our guest, uh, cancelled on us. So we really, really do appreciate it. And hopefully, the, I mean, the show will go perfect, but just letting people know we haven't much had, had much time to, to prep, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's how it goes sometimes. Yeah, not that we prep much anyway. We no. We've been winging it for what? Nearly 90 episodes now. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and people seem to like it. I mean, we, we've, uh, we're already beyond uh, 500,000 downloads uh, in our lifetime. So, so we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, somebody's listening. Oh, it's just my mum downloading a lot. She's got a bot. <laughs> just a bot running, just downloading the episodes over and over, which I wouldn't put it past my mum, to be honest. <laughs> well that's nice of her if, if it's just her <laughs> <laughs> hey those numbers don't lie <laughs> single-handedly uh, causing the general Uddersfield area's uh, um, electricity to spike huh <laughs> yeah well that's it that's it absolutely um yeah Barbara how how are you how are things you are in Canada which I believe had some quite exciting news in the the Viking world I guess yeah, there is this confirmation that uh, the Vikings were here in Canada at uh, Lance Meadows um, a thousand years ago. So that was something that uh, people had been pretty sure was the case for a while, but now they were actually able to date that site. I don't know if mm-hmm. others might want to say a little bit more about that than I actually know about it, because that's not my area of specialization. Is that a 
ball kicked into my field right there. Definitely, yes. <laughs> it's definitely not in my field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so what they have done is that they have used a, as far as I can see, a a, um, a solar flare to calibrate. There's a solar flare that happened in the past to calibrate um, their uh, um, C14 dating of the site and have been able to uh, precisely, and I am not a scientist, so I have no idea how this works. Uh, you'll have to look up the study if any of you who are interested in the details. Um, but yes, they've been able to calibrate and figure out exactly when um, is some pieces of wood uh, from that site are from, and that is uh, from the year 1021. So we have precise dating of the presence of uh, some kind of Scandinavian Vikings there uh, in Longsaw Meadows at that particular year. So, so that's exciting. It is something, as, as you pointed out, Barbara, this is something that we sort of already knew uh, in terms of, you know, all the uh, other data that we have available. Even the written material seems to place uh, Vikings in, in the early thousands in, in, in Longstone Meadows so, or, or in Canada, northern uh, North America or something, something somewhere around there. We, we of course don't have a precise uh, location mentioned in the saga literature as such. So yeah, that is exciting. That is very interesting. And um, once again, as a literary scholar, I just want to point out that it uh, kind of just tells us that the literature is right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it seems exciting. Um... I guess, like you said, it, it's been widely accepted again amongst people who are interested in this this world. But I think to the outside world, everybody still gives it to Christopher Columbus. So yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it. Hopefully, I mean, I don't know how far this news will spread. Whether it will just cycle amongst our people, or will it go <laughs> to like every, the Muggles, everybody else? I'm sure that in Canada. Uh, people are generally aware of the, the Scandinavian presence, right? It's hard to say. Like, I, definitely in my social circles, people are very much aware of this, but I know a lot of heathens, and the heathens were excited about it. So I think CBC had something on it, which is not quite as dominant as it used to be in Canada. Yeah, that's kind of my thought, that we're all probably heavily involved with people who are into this this kind of stuff so it's hard to get that perspective of people who who aren't i guess um i have a, a my, my close friends actually are not into this stuff at all i'm the only one who kind of is so i i kind of get a i wouldn't call it a reality check but a different perspective when i when i hang out with them and this stuff they, they have no clue about this to them it's just what they learned in school and it would be they would just it would be christopher columbus who who discovered america i guess um, so hopefully we can tell everyone that it wasn't. Go spread the gospel, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't go preaching. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think it means? Do you think it changes anything? It being confirmed, or is it just a, a nice thing to happen? 
I mean, it's it, it doesn't change much, I think. Um, I mean, we're already there where uh, the, the talking about Europeans discovering North America is a weird, questionable thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm much more interested in recent archaeological finds that confirm that people have been in North America for more than 10,000 years, more mm -hmm. than 14,000 years, that date keeps getting pushed back further and further. I think I saw something just recently about it getting pushed back to 20,000 or 22,000 years. Mm -hmm. I, I was I was under the impression it was 130,000 years actually based off of some carvings that have been located in, in, in South America, but this might be my own concoction. I've I don't come know. across some of those things, but uh, I've not been able to confirm uh, uh, with academic sources of those. But again, that's not my area of expertise at all. I'm just interested in it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I think it's very interesting. And, uh, and I think that we're going to see that date of arrival of humans in nor uh, North and South America in general being pushed back farther and farther, I'm sure, as, as, uh, as um, archaeologists discover more um, evidence of that. And I'm not surprised at all. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a curious idea that, that human presence would be so, quote unquote, young, mm -hmm. pretty much half of the world. <laughs> For some people, it supports a narrative of the idea that uh, indigenous people here don't really have a right to the place because they killed off all the megafauna just like people did in Europe, basically, which mm. is questionable, yeah, it, to say the least. Yeah, that's one of the things that we should consider that I don't think that that's very obvious to 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 Europeans uh, in general, but a lot of um, there's a lot of politics involved in, in, the, in the whole idea of like who came when and where and how and all that stuff like even the the battle between Vikings and Columbus has a white supremacist background uh, from the early uh, 19th century where um, you see uh, a lot of uh, um, self-described uh, white northern European or whatever they are um, Americans being like, oh, we we can't have some some guy from the Mediterranean discovering America, so therefore let's push the Viking narrative and Eric and all that funky stuff, and that's of course um, that's of course a, a problematic issue in and of itself. Um, but what what we can say in in, in terms of all of this is that. Um, there is some. Uh, there, it is. It is interesting to see that that, that there is uh, support for interactions between uh, Northern Europeans and uh, North Americans in 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 that time period in the in the uh, first uh, what is it the eleventh century? That's what we call it. So yeah, I find that very fascinating. <laughs> Do you think that it now being confirmed? that it will help funding be granted for for people to research maybe how far the, the Congo Vikings went in North America? I think there's, uh, uh, there's going to get, uh, I mean, it's, it has always been of interest, I think, or at least uh, since the 70s, it's been of interest uh, um, uh, sort of publicly in, in Canada and um uh, I think I think there's always going to be some research funding being allocated to to figuring out um, if these people went other places and 
how they did it and who they talked to and uh, interacted with and all that stuff. And we should expect to find some some other locations of interactions. But keep in mind too that this huge area mm-hmm. and, and it's very difficult to, to say much about which direction they went um, after uh, they, they created that landing, landing spot in, uh, in Lonsdale Meadows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was when I was in Iceland, there's the little museum next to the airport. I can't remember the name of. It. Is it Viking World? Um, I'm sure there was a video suggesting that it was possible to maybe have gone to South America. Now, do I think they See, will have this gone is all the, the reason I avoid I those museums? Well, <laughs> I wanted to actually ask whether you think that would even be wildly possible for. I mean, it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but is it likely that they did? Isn't it far more likely that people would have sailed across the Pacific than the Atlantic early on? Um, in I don't think it's far more likely. I think it's just as likely, right? I mean, we the 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 all the different peoples that were traveling across the, the Pacific Ocean, they made it pretty far. Pacific is a lot bigger than the uh true, the but there's more islands that stretch out across the distance as far as I'm aware. So if I remember correctly, uh there is some uh evidence of genetic interactions between uh people in the Peru Ecuador area. And and some of those peoples in the islands, maybe the Easter Islanders, if I'm not mistaking, I might be mistaken yeah. on this one. But um, if that's the case, then of course we have peoples who have been traveling across. And I mean, I'm not surprised at that at all. I mean, these these people are master navigators and and great boat builders, so of course they would be able to do that. Um. So yeah. Uh, just because just because we Europeans sort of like came late to that thing and it doesn't mean that other people weren't capable of doing it before. <laughs> no, I, I, th- I think the idea was that they, they settled North America and then would have, I guess, naturally wanted to follow the coastland, coastline down and obviously get maybe travel down and, and get to, to South America. But even... Even it would be interesting if they didn't get as far as South America. You, you would assume if they made a settlement in in North North America, Canada way, that they would have at least maybe explored a little bit. Well, um, what is it? There is like a, a particular type of nut that was found in in the Lanzo Meadows uh, site uh, that uh, grow farther south. It doesn't get as far up north as, as where Lonzo Meadows is, as far as I remember. So that means that they probably went down there. That's also, uh, that has been used to sort of uh, suggestively indicate that, uh, that, that the idea that they found grapes was right. Because those, those nuts, I can't remember what they're called. They, they grow at the same um, uh, latitude as, as, as grapes. But Again, it's kind of speculative because it could also be traded, you know. Yeah, there's lots of things that appear further north than they grew because of trade. 
Yeah, I think I remember that might be part of the documentary as well. And now you said that because is is North USA known for vines? Maybe not really. No, I'm probably remembering it wrong. There's definitely grapes that grow around the Great Lakes region. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's lots of wineries now that are established around uh, Niagara, Beamsville. Um, that's where my family is from a generation back. And now there's also on this side of the lake, closer to where I am on, in Prince Edward County now, there's grape growing established. And this is using European varieties now they've established that can grow in these areas. That's not what was growing there at the time, but there were grapes, there were wild grapes, even that grow here in Ottawa, which is a bunch further north than around like the Great Lakes region. Yeah, just I mean, I guess for anybody listening, the reason we're talking about grapes is because they named, I guess it's in the literature they named the land Vineland. Mm. So which can also mean meadowland. So there's there's something going on there. It can mean both wine or or meadow, and depending on how you spell it. And orthography wasn't standardized when they wrote the saga, so. So this is this is the main argument that that um, that saga scholars have had for about a century and a half. Did they spell it with a dot or a little stroke above the eye? <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is actually one of the first things that ever caught my attention as a child about Vikings was this idea of Vineland or Vinland, because the town where I lived as a young child in Ontario, it's called Vineland. It's uh, not too, too far from Toronto. It's about an hour's drive from Toronto, right on Lake Ontario. Oh, cool. I think for me, what got me interested was giant axes and <laughs> all, all, the, all the killing, but I was just a young, well, I say young boy. I was probably like 22. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's talk about the main body of the episode, which is gifting in, I guess, modern heathenry. I'm going to be honest, I I don't know what that is. And so let's, I think, if you could just explain that, I guess, first would be, would be a good place to start. Okay. So I did a PhD recently on uh, heathens, looking at inclusive heathens in Canada. And I was interested in ritual practices and how ritual practices might support the development of an environmental ethic. So how do ritual practices actually get people to act in a particular pro-environmental way? It's This idea has been around for a long time that ritual somehow inculcates ethics. This is something that's been an idea put forth by Emil Durkheim early on in sociology. But there's not been a really good understanding of how does that happen? So I wanted to do an ethnographic study, actually participate in rituals and see, well, what happens? What is going on there? And some of the rituals that I participated in when I started this research were things like the sumble ritual, the ritual of sharing drinks together, making toasts, and also sometimes giving gifts. In the particular community that I was studying in Ontario, People hold this annual festival called Hale and Horn Gathering. And part of that gathering is 
what they call high assemble, where there is a, a gathering of people. They have a bloat of making toasts. Sometimes it's just raising a glass, speaking words over the horn. Um, you can toast gods, you can toast ancestors, and you can toast the people who are present. And at Hale and Horn, they have two different rounds. The first one, you just make toasts. The second one, you give gifts. So okay. it's something a little bit more than just giving a toast, where you also give some sort of a gift. Sometimes it's a small token, or it might be some really um, emotionally heavy gift, like a wolf pelt or something like this, which is expensive for one thing, but also has a lot of meaning behind it. So I was interested, well, what is happening when people are giving these kinds of gifts? Well, what happens in general when you give a gift? It often makes you feel like you need to do something back. It develops reciprocity. And this is actually an idea which is very important in contemporary heathenry within Canada anyway. Yeah, I, th I think it depends maybe on the person as well. I, I probably get more enjoyment out of giving gifts than receiving gifts. I, I always have done. I, I tend to go over the top when it comes to Christmas. So it, a lot of people probably want to be on my present list. But I, I, <laughs> I, I, get, I do get some enjoyment out of it when, when I give somebody something maybe that they weren't expecting or it's, it's something that they need. I, I get very much a sense of self-gratification, I guess, from that. It makes me happy to see them happy, whereas obviously I like getting gifts, but I, I certainly do like the giving part. Yeah, well, this is something I found interesting talking to people about this gifting process of what is meaningful to people is the giving of the gift. And they very often perceive it as a giving back for something that the person has done for them personally or for the community more broadly. So it's a way of saying thank you. It's given for something that they have already received. So it's not a gift that's usually given with an expectation that you're going to get something back from the person. It's usually more of an indirect kind of thing. And I think this is actually what creates a strong community overall. That, I would say that's quite interesting because I think certainly if you take Chris, like Christmas, for example, that always seems to be, especially maybe, I guess, amongst friends, but certainly against amongst couples, that it has to be almost equal. Like we'll spend the same amount and what I give you has to be of equal value of what what I get back. It, it seems to be very much kind of that idea of giving and receiving equally. Um, yeah, and I think this is something that it's an idea that comes from a transactional economy where we are accustomed to you pay money for something and it's supposed to be equal to what you pay for the thing that you're buying. And it, it's a relationship which is set up to be cut off at the end of the exchange. It doesn't allow any ongoing social ties. Whereas if you look at gifting economies, 
the way that you maintain relations between people and between groups is you have these overlapping cycles of giving gifts where there's a gift given and there's a social obligation attached to it. And it's not reciprocated immediately, sometimes not directly, but the relationship is not over when you give the gift. Maybe that's what I'm doing when I give people good gifts. I'm just in the back of my mind thinking, in a few years when I need something, <laughs> I'm going to remind you of this. Yeah, I'm sure that's that must be part of it, especially back. I know we're talking about contemporary, but in the, in the Viking age, I'm assuming gifting will have been just as important, well, more important to getting the sway of people and getting people on your side. And if you want to put an army together, I guess some gifts, gifts are given. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, it's definitely an important, an important thing for kind of making social ties. If we want to, if we want to sort of like get historically critical about um, uh, contemporary uh, pagans and uh, and what they do and and such things, I think one of one of the, the the things that seems most in line with historical pre-Christian uh, culture in Northern Europe is this gift give, giving um, um, process. We 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 can identify. A pattern of of gift giving uh, to establish alliances, for instance, between um, uh, elite individuals and families, um, all the way back to you know the height of what in Northern Europe is known as the Germanic Iron Age, uh, so post-Roman influence, and um, and so that that's really interesting to see that you know the proliferation of of, of uh, certain artifacts with certain type of um, art on it basically uh, reflects sort of a northern European gift-giving um, process back and forth to establish alliances. Now the interesting thing is also that it looks like the thing that disrupts this is actually Christianity. So, <laughs> so all of a sudden the, 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 uh, the elite in, in Scandinavia is cut off from, from the elite that they uh, were otherwise um it connected to in um in in central and western europe um so i i think it's really fascinating as a phenomenon um and and um i know this in in terms of my my, my own relationship to 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 heathen groups um and out there i know this phenomenon as one of the more the older phenomenons too um gift giving is something that I recognize all the way back to the '90s, at least. So, I wonder what how it even started. Um, do you have any sort of like historical uh, information for us on on where this phenomenon comes from and, and why it is so significant? I don't have uh, data that will actually support anything. I just have so and so says so and so, like that would at least put it back to the 80s in people reading sources like Paul Boschett's uh, The Well in the Tree, where he talks about Sumble and has this has been used as a, a model for how mm -hmm. Sumble should be conducted and supplemented with uh, later sources now, like Stephen Pollington's book, The Mead Hall, things like this. But those practices were starting to be developed in the United States and passed 
on to people in Canada, at least by the 80s, as far as I'm aware. And then there's other sources that are earlier than that that talk about the importance of ceremonial drinking and passing the the mead cup, like uh, Michael N. writes, the lady with the mead cup and things like this that have traced that kind of practice of shared drinks. And people will point to also the um, Heimskringla where um, people have talked more about the, the bloat practices associated with that, um, of the requirement to give an offering and how the king of Norway had to eat a piece of horse liver to maintain his relationship with the people that he was trying to govern. But in that same text, it also talks about how passing the toasts across the fire was also part of that required um, ritual, essentially, of sharing food and drink together and passing the horn. Yeah, I think, I mean, Matej, you'll know better than, than me whether, what do we know, like, accurately when it comes to the Viking Age, when it comes to rituals like this? Were they, were they popularizing much more of a modern phenomenon? The drinking ritual is a historical phenomenon. Seems to be very old, <laughs> very old. Um, one of the things that you can see in in uh, a, what do you call that Roman Iron Age um, is is the term that I have decided to use for it. Um, so so the time period where where Romans uh, the Roman um, Empire starts uh, influencing Scandinavia materi materially and also culturally in different ways. We see one of the first things that they seem to be really thrilled about in, in southern Scandinavia and especially in uh, in the Danish area uh, is where we have found most evidence of of, of interaction with the Roman area um, is is of course uh, drinking vessels. And it is, they seem to, uh, I have a personal fear. We talked a little bit with Terry Gunnell about it, and that's where Terry was like, orgies, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> I have, uh, my personal theory is that it looks like these rulers in, in certain locations, like Trykkevelle in southern Denmark, uh, or southeastern Denmark, they, they picked up on the Dionysian um, rituals and and we're totally down with uh this uh ritual sharing of 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 the bowl full of uh, some kind of um um intoxicating drink um i'm sure they started importing wine at that time and uh i am also personally quite convinced that this is a ritual that persists because there are so many sources that in one way or another hints at drinking rituals and they don't go away with Christianity either. They just, you know, take on more of a secular. Yeah. Yeah. They get transformed. Right. Like we still do wedding toasts. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's sort of like a, a phenomenon that, 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 that just seems to persist. And if it didn't exist before Roman influence on Northern Europe, uh, then it definitely comes in those first centuries AD, if you ask me. I, I'm also kind of convinced that they probably existed before then, but they take on new forms again with the Roman influence. Yeah, I think you can trace it uh, further back in Europe also, just with early um, 
gathering sites. Mm -hmm. Like people have looked at uh, beer brewing specifically. Yeah, and and also, I mean, mead as 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 a type of uh, alcohol is is personally one of the oldest types of alcohol that we know of. It's in it's pretty easy to make also. So, so that's something that we know has existed in Europe and Northern Europe for a very, very long time. Yeah. I mean, you can see why drinking toasts or rituals would, would be a thing. Um, I mean, anybody who's, I think most people have probably been maybe on a night out or had drinks with people that they don't, they don't know. Maybe it's, it's a friend gathering and there's somebody new, in the group and you do feel a lot closer when you've been on a night out drinking and kind of everybody gets on a little bit more loosens inhibitions everybody talks a little bit more i guess um and you do feel closer by the end of it even if it's just after one night you you certainly feel more my friends i guess is that is that fair to say yeah i've definitely had that kind of experience before but uh i do feel like i should insert uh a statement here about uh, drink responsibly and uh, even drinking is not just about socially getting drunk. Uh, when people make toasts in Sambal, they share deeply emotive things. Like at Hale and Horn, a lot of people cry during this process, men and women. And it's not because they're getting drunk and maudlin or whatever, it's because they are expressing deeply important things about each other in a public setting. And it's important that it's witnessed because the perception is that these words that are spoken over the horn are deposited into the well of weird. So this is why if you make an oath in that context, you are expected to do what you say because you've said that into weird, it's gotta happen. And the people who are present need to help you make that happen. So actually at Hale and Horn, it's strongly discouraged that you make oaths because we don't wanna bind everybody there. Um, it, this is a wider setting than just a personal gathering of a kindred or whatever. Like it, it's not just a small group of people, it can be up to a hundred people doing this at that, in that particular context because this uh, is a fairly large heathen festival. It draws people from across Ontario and Quebec as well as from further afield in Canada, we often have people coming from BC or Calgary or whatever. There'll always be a few people from elsewhere. There are a few people from the United States who regularly come up also. I mean, even in that setting, I think even maybe even more so, you can see why you would break down boundaries. Um, I, I guess the alcohol will definitely help a little bit, but if you're in a situation where other people are being open and honest, you tend to maybe let yourself be more, especially when there's no judgment and you'd still have that fear that, that maybe someone was going to judge you. Um, I think that's just a very natural, a natural thing to natural thing to have. Um, so once you, I guess once you see how accepting it is, then it, would certainly make it easier to to share because yeah i mean it's a it's a scary thing kind of showing your feelings um i mean yeah i i, I try not to very often 
This is something that uh, I do see in other ritual contexts within heathenry, though. Certainly the inclusive heathens that I'm familiar with in Ontario from my study, uh, in bloat also, people totally speak from the heart when they are giving offerings to deities within a, a bloat setting of a formal ritual. It's very emotional. People talk about their relationship with the deity. And again, a lot of times people cry. Mm. I'm a big crier, so I always cry. <laughs> oh, I'm a big crier. I'm a, I'm a big softy inside. I might not look it, but I am. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I can only speak from, from how I would be. I mean, I, I've never been to, to a ritual like that, but I assume that if, if I was put in a position where I had to kind of open up and I mean, I, I, I take, maybe that's not the right phrase because I assume it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have to, it's not something forced, but certainly if I was there, I would, I would want, I would want to partake. I would want to, to, to take, take part in it, but I also would be very self-conscious, I guess, which I guess that the alcohol would help, but I would be, I would be self-conscious of, of kind of saying whatever I wanted to say. And I, I think that would just be, maybe most people might feel like that until they're there and uh, they're a little bit more comfortable. I don't, I don't know. I just feel. It would yeah. Be... And some people aren't comfortable talking in a group, but it is very much encouraged in the, the rituals that I've participated in. Uh, people are invited to make personal offerings as part of bloat and they often do speak but it is usually stated by the people who are leading the ritual that you don't have to talk out loud you can just silently do whatever so some people choose to do that but even people who otherwise don't tend to speak up in groups often do share words at that time and it makes it I think even more special. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine that it is a, a very. I'm trying to think of the the right the right word for it. Just I guess it's almost a magical moment when everybody feels connected, um, everybody's listening to each other, which is also very important. And then just being able to have your have your own time, I guess, to speak, and then say what you want to say. And that doesn't happen very often in life, I don't think. I don't think we get much much time to where people truly listen. Um, obviously, we do we do the podcast, and once a week we get to sit down and and actually speak to people and listen. And there's no distractions. I don't have my phone. Potatoes doesn't have his. The guests don't. We you know we we're stuck in a conversation for an hour and a half. But in in normal life, I don't think that happens anymore. Or certainly not in my life because I'm just rushing around doing whatever I have to do. And I guess it's probably the same for Mateus. Yeah, right. You, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't happen that often. You just sit down and you talk with people and share thoughts and ideas and you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. Huh. That I hadn't really realized that. But yeah, it is something that's like slowly just like, you know, evaporized from my life, so to speak. I think it's a skill as well. I think anybody. I think listening... you have to make time for it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, yeah. but you also have to have somebody to 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 talk to. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, if you're if you haven't cultivated or haven't had time to cultivate relationships to people um in in that way and um then then it doesn't just doesn't happen and and i i don't know um if i'm gonna offend americans here but uh guys um it's not like it's it's not like you can sit down and have a very focused conversation with a lot of people in this country let's just say it that way <laughs> I, I think no, I, I, I think even people who are in relationships, there's one thing having conversation when you're maybe in the car driving a 10-minute journey or talking about what you're going to have for tea or, or something very menial like that. But it's another thing, like, like you said, Barbara, to, you, have to, you have to make the time to, to sit and maybe block out half an hour where you actually have a conversation about things other than the direct things that are happening in life. And I'm sure I'm, I'm not the only one who's definitely been neglectful of that in my life. I, I don't do that. I'm so busy trying to run a business, do the podcast, organize this, organize that, that when we, when we say the most things we talk about, are just things that are happening in daily life, not an actual time conversation. And I think conversation is certainly a skill that when you, if you don't do it, you almost forget how to do it. Um, do, doing the podcast for so many shows, I'm sure people who listen to this will see such a difference when me and Mateus started to us now and how we're, we're able to, you know, just have easy conversations with people. And because it's not, it's not an easy thing without it sometimes feeling awkward or coming across awkward because when you don't do it all the time, you kind of forget how to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also a, a stage of life thing that happens to a lot of us where we maybe find more time to spend with friends when we're in our teens or twenties or whatever. And then as you get more adult responsibilities, whether it's just through jobs or through having children or whatever, I know that it was definitely experience, an experience for me that after I had a child, I just did not have the same time to devote to maintaining friendships, but now my child is older and uh, I have more time to do some of those things. Yeah. Small children will definitely destroy your social life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it changes it. Yeah. That's, that's another way to put it, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's the same with, you know, um, buying a new house. <laughs> I feel like I constantly have something to do. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or getting a car. It's like, okay, so now I need to go get maintenance. Now I need to go get new tires. There's this and there's that. And there's like always something. So all those things compounding, and then you don't have time for anything at all. And there you go. Don't you think that, that no matter what, you'll always find something to take your time? Whether, whether it was a new house, a new car, children, puppy, there'll always be something if you let there be something it's it's about making that conscious effort to i guess see people i know sometimes it's not possible but there there usually is a way if you want to um but it's easy to kind of go okay we want to do this or this is a little bit more important or interesting right now um rather than just like okay because it, 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 i guess sitting down and having a conversation with someone for an hour doesn't 
always seem like the most productive thing you can do with your time in the moment. You can always be, I'm sure there's always something where you can be like, I can do this or in this hour, I could be doing this instead. Whereas I, but it, by the, in the end, I think that it's very rewarding. I know when I, when we do the podcast every week, by the time we're done, I certainly feel very rewarded from it. I, I've learned something. I, I feel like I've practiced some skills that I don't do every day. Um, I think everyone just needs to take a little bit more time to, to speak to each other. I mean, it goes back to the idea that everything is transactional, right? Late stage capitalism is, is, is based on the idea that, that everything needs to be a transaction. Uh, everything needs to be um, uh, something that we all uh, gain revenue from. And uh, that's really problematic in and of itself. So, yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of people have experienced during the pandemic the, the loss of social contact, which has been very challenging for people's mental health. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I came across was looking at uh, even face-to-face -face interactions with people in your neighborhood that you don't really know, like a shopkeeper where you go and buy, I don't know, where you go buy milk or whatever. But uh, even just a brief social interaction like that face-to-face, -face, it is dramatically better for people. It really improves your health overall, not just your mental health, but you'll actually live longer if you engage in these kinds of things because we need those kinds of relationships. Absolutely. We're human beings and we're, we're I think we thrive on that. And it's so easy to, to not go, go out and talk to people now. I certainly feel better seeing people. And again, I think it's as, as much with the conversation, it's a skill. And if you keep yourself away from people and stay in, and just do your own thing, the more you do it, the more maybe anxious and worried you will be to then go outside. So it's it's almost a catch-22 because it becomes more damning the longer you don't do it, so you don't want to do it. Um, but certainly, you know, seeing people and just being around other humans is, is good for us. Yeah, and it, it helps support community development, which I... I'm thinking about uh, other parts of my research about uh, good ways to promote pro-environmental behavior because this is the kind of work I've been doing most recently is focusing on, well, how do environmental values get propagated? And one of the best ways for getting action is through groups that meet face-to-face -face frequently. It actually is really important so religious communities are pre-existing groups which can be very effective because they already have this sense of community that meet together regularly. One thing I just uh, I wanted to ask you about, um, it just can backtrack a little bit to this uh, aspect of um, um, doing things that are um, should be natural to our existence. Um, <clears throat> So, so if if uh, contemporary pagans have these types of rituals where they essentially cultivate a natural interaction, is there then some truth to uh, the claims uh, that 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 heathens um, try to sort of like go back to a more natural state that you sometimes see among these groups 
say that oh we we're, we're trying to cultivate a, a um a more uh, natural state of existence for for human beings um would you say that we're succeeding in that situation then or 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 is it uh <laughs> is that too far of a reach <laughs> i think that's going to depend very much on the specific community that you're talking about I definitely see that sort of thing happening in the healing groups that I'm involved with. I also see that happening in things like my sister's uh, Christian group that she belongs to. Uh, my parents were heavily involved in their church for many, many years. And again, that was a healthy community that was supporting what I would see as natural human relationships. So I wouldn't say it's anything unique to heathenry. It matters if people are trying to do this kind of thing rather than just adopting an identity because they like something about it and wanting to just be that thing. Like it, It's not just about being heathen. It's about creating a community together. Mm -hmm. And the underlying sort of theological premise for this is the notion that weird ties everyone and everything together yeah and i wanted to say something more specifically about how that involves the natural world because i've talked about it in human relations quite a bit starting with symbol rituals but i also wanted to talk about other kinds of gifting rituals within heathenry namely making offerings because when we give an offering that is also giving a gift and there's that same expectation of there being social bonds that are maintained through those giving of gifts. So sometimes people will talk about this in a, a very direct transactional kind of way. Like they'll talk about, um, I give so that you can give. And they will interpret that as a direct reciprocity of I'm giving this offering to the gods so that the gods will give me something. But some heathens, interpret that somewhat differently. They'll say, I'm giving something to this deity so that they are able to give. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to give something back to them. It might mean that they will give something to somebody else who needs it. Like if I give an offering to the goddess Air, who in this heathen tradition is interpreted as a goddess of healing, I don't particularly need that for myself, but if I give an offering to air, then I might hope that something is available to somebody else from air because I gave this gift. Similarly, if I give an offering to um, a land, the tier, like a, a power of nature, um, I'm not expecting to get something directly back from that, but I do very much feel that I am in a gifting relationship with the natural world. I breathe air that plants breathe out for me to breathe. We have this ongoing, uh, totally interdependent relationship with plants that we usually completely forget about. I think it's useful to recognize those kinds of relationships in a ritual context so that we bring them to mind and we appreciate them. We experience that feeling of gratitude for these kinds of relationships. And I see this happening also with some heathen practices of bloat, 
where sometimes people offer animals even. I know this is uh, a bit of a controversial subject more generally within uh, contemporary heathen practice, but some heathens do offer animals. And it's generally very important to the people involved that that animal has a good life. So it's not just you go and buy a piece of meat at the grocery store and offer it to the gods. No, you raise an animal or you acquire one that has been raised ethically for that purpose. And then you offer that animal and you share its flesh together in community. I think going back to, as you mentioned earlier about outsiders, if they saw a bunch of heathens or, or what they would see as kind of like, they'd probably link it to some sort of devil worshiping as well. But if they saw a, a bunch of heathens in the woods um, sacrificing an animal, they would there would be outcry. It would be cruelty. Like I, I have no doubt that it would be linked to devil worshiping in some way, but it would be seen very, very negatively. Um, and yeah. I, to, to especially like I say to out certainly to outsiders to, to people who aren't in into this kind of thing there would be no way that you could kind of explain it as being a, a good thing even when you when you go go down to it and look at it the animal probably had a better life it was probably killed in a more humane way it's its flesh was probably appreciated more um and it, everything was probably used but to, out, to the outside world, I, I can't imagine it would be ever looked upon favorably. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I agree with that. And, and we've talked about this on the podcast before with the Arctic hunting and slaughtering practices. And uh, for instance, what we sometimes see um, are, are people who react very strongly to the Faroese uh, uh, porpoise hunt, which gets really bloody in the water um and um i remember Heidi jonsen from from Tuyr, uh, who said that uh, well the argument for continuing this practice is that, that these animals they live free range in the ocean and then some of them and there are thousands of them some of them get slaughtered in in this hunt it looks cruel or gruesome or something like that but it's nothing compared to raising a cow or a pig in one of those huge pens where they can exchange a bunch of um, antibiotic resistant bacteria and uh, then live a really sorry life and, and get slaughtered in a really unpleasant way and uh, then contribute to just uh, generally uh, uh, making everybody ill <laughs> in the end, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Factory farming is something that I could have a big rant about. Yes, I, right. <laughs> Very long one. <laughs> I know. Before before I, I started Horns, I, would, I was big into comics, and I, I started, I wrote a couple, um, and one was on factory farming, so I did a bunch of research on it. And it, it, I, don't, I don't think there's a worse crime committed by humans than, than factory farming. farming. I, it is abhorrent what, what they do. There's more animals in fact farming killed every year than there are people on the planet. It's, the, the, the sheer numbers of animals in, in fact found are, is outstanding. It is billions. Um, and the thing, just the, the life that they give them is just worse than any life they could give to anything. It's, but again, it, they, they use, is it Ad, Adgab, 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 
where basically where the whole silencing laws where you can't speak you know oh right yeah yeah you know so basically if you go in there whatever you see in there you can't say anywhere because you're just gonna get sued and yeah over here you can get like several years in prison for videotaping and those kinds of things in those uh facilities and yeah it's horrible it's really horrible it's um it's it's not good it's not nice i i it's something i i certainly feel pretty passionate about i don't i don't like it at all um but yeah that's a it's a bit of a sad subject let's get back to uh let's get back to get back to gifting um the nice cozy <laughs> part of things <laughs> yeah one of the other kinds of gifting that i look at is uh giving to ancestors okay and i found uh this was far more important to heathens than i expected because i was coming into an environmental studies program i was expecting partly from my background in studying religion and ecology too people often talk about well if divinity is imminent or found within nature then that should help people protect it right so i was expecting i was going to be focusing on things like what people would call genius loci or uh, spirits of nature or in heathens they would often talk about them as land or uh, spirits of the land but the offerings given to ancestors actually support an environmental ethic, I find. Partly because if you are giving offerings to your ancestors, it helps expand your moral community. First of all, it expands your sense of imagined community, goes further back in time because you're imagining who your ancestors were further back. It also gives you a sense of obligation to future generations often because the easiest way for you to give back to your ancestors is to in fact pass on things to your descendants Mm -hmm. there's this practice within northern european history that heathens try to emulate of you go out and you give offerings on the ancestors mound or where the ancestors are buried and over time people would forget the names of the people who were buried further back. So you just have this collective sense of ancestors. And in North America, people tend to refer to them as Alfar or um, as Desir, if it's female relatives in particular. So if people are giving offerings to these entities, what happened over time was eventually they get transformed into elves or to gnomes. Like people's perception of who is receiving those offerings over time changes. So there's a continuity between giving offerings to ancestors and just giving offerings to what might be perceived as nature spirits or uh, powers of the land, regenerative powers of the land, things like this. This is this is a really interesting interpretation um, or understanding of, of of the meaningfulness of ancestor spirits because I have encountered, especially in Europe, a lot of mixed with anti North American sentiments. I think also the rejection of ancestor veneration in any form, 
And I also see it among uh, some, I guess you could call them groups that are that are pretty far left here in the U.S. because this associated with the far right. Um, the idea that, oh, you, you, you venerate your ancestors because you're basically some kind of racist or something like that, right? Yeah, so. I have, uh, I've written about that also. And I hope I have an article coming out on that soon. <laughs> it's <Right>. uh, <laughs> under review right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, within these inclusive heathens that I've studied and that I am part of these groups, I am myself heathen, um, there's a recognition that, yeah, uh, a focus on ancestry, that can be really problematic. It can be quite exclusionary if people are talking about my white ancestors and they frame things in that way. Mm-hmm. The groups that I'm part of, of course, are not exclusive in that way. Uh, for one thing, they welcome people of whatever background to participate in the meetings, but they also don't just refer to ancestors as people who are biologically related to them. There are also ancestors of affinity. Uh, That's a term that comes from Daniel Four's work on ancestral medicine, where these are cultural ancestors that are also celebrated. So within the kindred that I belong to, the ancestors that are venerated are not just people's relatives that they can name, but also people like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, who are specifically trans women who were important in the early gay rights movement in the United States. So those are not people that we are genetically related to, but are people that we want to celebrate and that we do make offerings to. Mm-hmm. So in other kindreds locally here too, there are people who are venerated as ancestors who are not genetic relations. And then there's also ancestors of place that are recognized. So in North America in particular, very often the people who are participating in these heathen things have European ancestry, are settlers, but they want to recognize the indigenous people whose land they live on. So for instance, here, Uh, In Ottawa, I would give a land recognition or a land acknowledgement if I were to start doing a ritual here where I would say, I am on unceded territory of Anishinaabe people, Algonquin people, and make an offering. So ancestry in this context is not about any kind of pride in ancestry or pride in some uh, constructed identity of whiteness. That's not what it's about it's much more inclusive than that no i i think we have to be careful not vilifying people being able to be pride i don't like the word pride but talking to their answers just because they happen to be white i guess um and I, i think we're in that kind of uneasy position at the minute where it is almost vilified and you could be very inclusive but it's almost seen as it seems you nobody nobody could ever say oh it's got to be very tough to be to be proud when you use the word pride especially it becomes very negative because there are people who i guess ruin it um so people then feel that they 
they can't show any sort of happiness or look back to their to their ancestors. And it's I think you have to be careful to, to stop that because you can still be, be proud proud of where you come from and also be inclusive to everybody else and want everybody else to enjoy it as well. It doesn't have to. I, I, I don't think. Yeah, it matters how you do it, though. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that uh, that uh, complicates the situation for people here in North America is that a lot of these things are still being negotiated. This this situation has not been resolved. Like so, Denmark and Sweden, for instance, they don't. They they historically uh, some of the two nations on the planet that have been most at war. Um, and um, capturing territory from each other and all these things, right? There's a lot of things that you could bring up, um, but ultimately, these are issues that have been settled between these two peoples, and uh, (laughs) and, uh, now we can make fun of it. And that's what we do in different ways. We have fun little uh, arguments over them. But that's not at all the situation in uh, the Americas. Uh, Very little has actually been settled. And it's also been very hard, I think, for people to figure out how to settle it uh, properly and um, uh, figure out how to mend um, those wounds of the past, right? And so that's- Yeah, context matters a great deal. A lot, right? Like in Canada, we've been recently finding the bodies of Aboriginal children from residential schools. This is very much on people's minds. Uh, That's a relationship that uh, we need to work on. Yeah. And here in the US, we haven't found that many um, uh, of such uh, sites. And that's because we aren't looking, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, so that also tells you a little bit about the situation here. Um, so, so, so that I think is a it's a really good example, right, of of uh, all all the things that need to be worked through. Um, so, so that of course also uh, changes uh, things up compared to to Europe and the notions of pride and ancestry and and um, um, what a location actually is, right? Because I don't think that there's a lot of people who are questioning the, that the location that you're sitting in, Dan, is known as England. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe some crazy Vikings somewhere, a Viking bro from, from, from Norway or Denmark. But aside from that, right? Um, and this is an entirely different situation over here. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I just think we have to be very, very careful with how, we, how and where we go with things. Um, because you know we spoke about this on on the podcast a lot, and it's it's how much how much do you sacrifice because of twats who who try and take things and and use them use them for their own nefarious ways? How much do you give before you lose the majority of what you love or the ability to talk about it openly in public because it's seen negatively by people who are who are outsiders um because that's all we work down to there's so many people in this community that we surround ourselves that understand on a deeper knowledge that the valkno isn't a racist symbol or that the milner isn't a racist symbol but it, it, it it's what people see on facebook on instagram that the outsiders that make up the majority of the world who see these things and see them in a negative light 
and they associate them in all matters. Um, I think the other, the other thing is it's it's hard. It, as I, I know firsthand, it's hard to to ignore as well sometimes because I think as I showed you earlier in the week, Matthias. You know, we we get we get comments on on our posts all the time because we use black models and people don't like the idea of. So some people don't like the idea of like Viking age history or clothing, a black person wearing it. That's just a sad reality. Some people don't like it. We get comments from calling people monkeys to just, just to something as putting a banana or full out, just using the N word. Like that's just what people do. And what we, our stance is that we just delete it, block, delete report. And that's, that's it. But it gets to a point where I, I get, I, I get fucking frustrated with it and sick up of just deleting it because if nothing happens, Facebook don't do anything. Instagram do not care. I've I've reported things, but other people report it, and then it comes back with a little thing. It doesn't go against our guidelines because nobody really looks at it. It's just it's just a computer that looks at it. And unless unless maybe they're using a trigger word that, that picks up, if it's said just like in in context of a sentence, it's not going to flag up. So they just it's just allowed, and nothing happens from it. So I had a gentleman who who was telling me how why don't we use white models. Even though we do, we use use all you know models of different colors. And he was, you know, why, why, why have you got a black man wearing uh, like this Nordic design? So because it's 2021 and we we want to promote inclusivity and people can wear what the fuck they want, and we want people to enjoy the culture. So you know, it doesn't matter. Um, and he, you know, he started talking about mixed breeds and all this bullshit. And I got to the point where I was like, you know what, fuck you, and just posted it to on our Instagram to. You know, all all I've always seen is let people see what this person is. But then equally, I'm kind of you're all I'm almost buying into this publicity for them as well because you're showing that these people are out there. So you're in a I find myself in a catch twenty two situation where I, I want to delete and block and just ignore them, but also it's hard to just ignore because you just get you get sick of it. And you know, and as nice it is, people send me a bunch of messages saying, "Oh." You know, thank you for posting this. It, it shows a highlight. It's like, well, you shouldn't thank me because I just read the messages and it doesn't necessarily mean anything to me apart from I just think you're a fucking asshole for writing it. But it's more the people, I feel sorry for the people who who read it, who are mixed race or who are black, who are interested in this culture, read that and then have to have to read that and see what people, people think. They're the people who I, you know, I feel really bad for because... You know, I just read it and delete it because you're just a, a dick. But there are people who read it who genuinely, you're speaking to them and you're talking about them and their heritage. And it's just, it's, it's, it's what do you do about it? Because you can either ignore it or you shame it. But neither seems to work. And both kind of, I guess, have the positive and negative to how you deal with, with them. Um, but I haven't, I certainly haven't, and I certainly haven't let it stop bothering me either because it really does fuck me off when I get idiots like that. Just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but that, but equally, that's why I'm so outspoken about not losing the culture or the things we love to these people because they, they don't deserve this, you know, they don't deserve to have the, the symbols or, the any anything any part of this because it's not for them it's and and there's a lot there's much better people and there's a lot more people who don't feel think like that 
but they just don't get listened to, I guess, or they're not the the loudest voice. So these people take that take the uh, the headlines, um, and it's sad, and that's why I, I guess I'm so against kind of giving any ground at all to them. I agree. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck those assholes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's wrap you up on that somber note. <laughs> no, it's yeah, that, that one's been bothering me all week. But, oh well, that's my rant. Let's I, I love up. that rant. That's a great <laughs> rant. <laughs> I've been waiting all week for that. <laughs> no, listen, that's enough. Let's let's wrap up. Uh Barbara, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for uh, especially for coming in last minute. Um it's been a it's been a wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed it. Um, where can people find you, follow you, I guess, find your work? Well, as of now, I have only academic papers, um, but uh, I am in the process of converting my recent dissertation into a book. So eventually people will be able to look for the book. So I don't know quite yet who is going to publish that work. I'm uh, in conversation with a publisher right now about that. Oh, good luck with that. What is um, the dissertation on? It's called Weird Ecology. The dissertation itself is available from the University of Waterloo on, uh, I think it's called UW Space. Um, so if people really want to read a dissertation, they can find it there. Otherwise, uh, a somewhat more accessible version will be available eventually. I would expect it will maybe be called something like Heathen Ecology. But uh, that's not going to be entirely under my control as I'm familiar with from previous publishing experiences that uh, sometimes the publisher likes to choose a title. Norse mythology for children. Remember that one? Yeah, or the other old Norse something book that I published recently. No, let us know when when it's ready to come out, I guess, and you can pop back on the show and we'll talk about it. And, uh, Sounds good. Have some lovely more rants, I guess. More <laughs> lovely rants. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mateus. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram. Still for a little while. I don't know if I'm getting too sick of that platform too. But then, then you won't be able to find me anywhere. Dun, dun, dun. Here you can find me here. Hell yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Weekly rants to the podcast, absolutely. <laughs> That's it. That's what we save our our monthly episode for. Yes. <laughs> All right. If you want to follow me um, personally, it's Daniel underscore Farrand one on Instagram. The business, obviously, is Hollands of Odin. Um, for the podcast, Not Nordic Mythology podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five star rating and a positive review. Helps us bump up. I think we're we're on four point eight out of five now from two hundred and sixty something reviews. I always check them every day. So write nice things. Um, and then if you really want to help the show, then um, Patreon is the best way. You can pop over there. We've got a bunch of different tiers. You get a bo- No matter what tier you support, you get a bonus episode every week. Um, it's either the Vikings watch along where me and Mateus sit down and watch an episode of Vikings and let people know our thoughts, which is we're going to do right after this. Or the other one is the story time episode where Jonas Lorenzen now comes on and narrates a saga. And Mimitas get to sit back and have a good laugh. And they are good. They are funny. They're, they're honestly worth the subscription to Patreon for, for anybody's money. 
They are yeah. hilarious. Jonas, come, those... come come listen to the Cockney version of Cigarette the Dragon Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you I can I cannot thank you, Jonas, enough for, for doing those. He 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 goes all out. He's got a character and a and an accent for every single person in the in the saga. It's it really is a good time. So to just hop on and check them out. You've got the the first two episodes are also on the Patreon. You can listen to them, watch them. Um, and if you don't like it, you can always cancel your Patreon, I guess. But I promise you will enjoy it. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barbara.